Hello everyone and, and welcome to this Archives of Disease in Childhood, Fetal and Neonatal Edition podcast. Um, today we're discussing the BAPM, Perinatal Management of Extreme Preterm Birth Before 27 Weeks Gestation, a framework for practice. And I've got um, three authors that have uh, either been involved in, in that process um, or who have written editorial and commented on it. And I'll just ask them to introduce themselves. And Helen, I think we'll start with you. I'm Helen McTeer. I'm a consultant neonatologist in Glasgow and I am currently the president of the British Association of Perinatal Medicine and I chaired the working group who put together this update to our framework for practice. Thank you. And, and Annie? Hello, my name is Annie Janvier. I'm a neonatologist uh, and a clinical ethicist and researcher at St. Justin Hospital in Montreal. I investigate parental perspectives and I'm myself the mom of three children, one of whom was born at 24 weeks. Thank you. And Dominic? Hi, I'm Dominic Wilkinson. I'm a consultant in newborn intensive care in Oxford uh, and professor of medical ethics at the University of Oxford. Thank you all very much for taking the time to have this very important discussion. Um, Helen, I think we'll, we'll start with you. Um, Archives has quite a broad and international readership. Um, just so, the, so that people are all on the same page, could you just explain what this editorial is, um, in essence, where it's come from? Has it succeeded anything with any previous iterations of it? Um, and perhaps how that has differed? I realize that's four questions, but what is this? What, what are we talking about? Why is it important? Thanks, Jonathan. This is our framework for practice for the management of extreme preterm birth before 27 weeks of gestation. Now, the British Association of Perinatal Medicine issued a similar framework um, over 10 years ago now, um, and we realised that a lot has changed in regard to outcome for extremely preterm babies, and in fact, in regards to practice. So people are resuscitating babies, stabilising resuscitating babies from 22, 23 weeks of gestation, and we thought it was time to update the framework to reflect that. Um, I think also over the last 10 years, there's been an enormous change in attitude to how we manage babies and importantly parents and a much, much greater appreciation of the need properly to involve parents, to listen to them and to take their views into account. And that is very much reflected in the revised uh, framework. Uh, we also, one of the really important parts of this framework is that previous guidance has very much uh, centred on completed weeks of gestation and decided or recommended that decisions are made based on completed weeks of gestation. Now, obviously gestation is very important in regards to outcome, but it's absolutely not the only thing. So there are many contributing factors to the baby's prognosis and these are addressed in this document and a recommendation made that we should be managing these pregnancies and deliveries uh, based on a, a combined assessment of risk and according to parental wishes. Um, in terms of has the framework worked well, I think it's a little bit early for that. I think it was very well received. We had a, a huge feedback from stakeholders and the final document was modified a little bit in regards to that and it certainly seems to have been favourably received but in terms of how much it's changed in practice I think we probably need to wait a little bit to see 
um, what the data show us on that. Um, just for everybody's information, when was this framework for practice initially published? It was published in October last year, so we've been on the go about eight months. I realise time stood still with the global pandemic, but I think, yeah, eight months. Absolutely, absolutely. It's a little bit unfortunate. As with many things, the global pandemic has somewhat got in the way of things. We were planning lots of discussion um, about the framework and feedback from that at the Perinatal 2020 conference, which in fact was to have taken place in London. So sadly, that's been uh, cancelled. But we hope very much to take discussions forward as soon as we can find a suitable venue for that. So, Annie, to, and to come to you, um, you've said in your editorial, and in fact, it's, it's quite a provocative title, um, A Time for Hope. Um, do you think that um, these guidelines are a, a, a step forward? Are they too much of a step forward? Are they running to catch up? Um, what's, what's your view? Why, why is this a time for new hope, I guess, is my question. Well, it's time for hope because we finally see some guidelines adapting to real life. Um, and adapting partially, the, that's why there's a time for hope because we can always hope for better, I think, in every country. Um, there's multiple points, I think, why this uh, guideline is progressive. Um, first of all, the, between the first epicure and the second epicure, there was improvements in clinical care. So looking at all these improvements and people that have been working hard, the guidelines have adapted to that and to the reality of how these babies survive uh, and how well they do. Um, traditionally in the guidelines, there's three zones um, that are analyzed in terms of deciding should this baby receive life-sustaining intervention. Um, the beneficial zone, yes, I'm, I'm really shortening it a lot. And then the gray zone where um, the parental zone discretion where we may decide with parents or we should decide with parents, and then the quote-unquote futile zone where we should not intervene. And this was unfortunately all based on gestational age. And progressive guidelines such as the UK guidelines have changed this um, and are now looking at uh, every aspect of the baby as opposed to just the gestational age, which is imprecise. It's very different to if you look at all the international guidelines where this gray zone beneficial um, and futile zone is. So in some countries, futile is beneficial, for example, in Japan or in some places in the US and others, for example, France, 23 weekers are still not or extremely rarely resuscitated. So this is... Um, concerning to me that guidelines um, in countries with similar um, systems um, are so different. Um, I think what's important is how to implement the guidelines um, in order for the Epicure 3, maybe I shouldn't say that because um, this is so much work for you to do, but for, so the next uh, investigation will show improvements. And it's not just what happens in the delivery room and the clinical care. Um, it, it takes regionalization. It takes politics. It takes really resilient individuals who are ready to work for preemies. And that's very um, difficult. And I congratulate um, all those in the UK because there's been these individuals that have gone to improve the establishment. And that's very tough. Um, 
where is there time for hope then? It's um, in two points, the pessimistic slant of how everything is written is in terms, for example, of risk of mortality with impairment as opposed uh, to chance of survival and a good quality of life. Um, there's also the, I think, very outdated um, view of what a severe disability is um, and to actually include stakeholders in what they think uh, the disabilities are. Because um, until now, it's researchers and physicians, and we're generally privileged individuals without um, any disability and with a high socioeconomic status. And we're the ones who classify vulnerable children into categories of severe, moderate, minor. Um, and my research is all about this, about asking parents, um, how do you classify your child in terms of disability and how well is he functioning and what can we do better and what's worse in his life? And we often find, for example, that parents of children with mild or moderate CP do not classify their child as severely disabled. Um, but many parents of quote unquote normal children classify them as disabled because of their difficulty sleeping, um, feeding, regulating their emotions, which are things we're not yet investigating. Um, so I think these will probably come out, the parent important outcomes or family important outcomes, or eventually when these preemies grow, patient important outcomes be included in these guidelines. Dominic, um, just to bring you into the conversation, you were involved in, in writing these guidelines. Do you think that they offer a, a different set of terminology, a different language, a different hope than previous guidelines have, uh, have given in the past? Um, and where does that come from? As neonatologists, we're, we're not known for being, well, perhaps the ones that I've worked with, forgive me if you have, um, we're not known for our automatic optimism. Um, so do you think that having a more progressive stakeholder approach has allowed that to, to be more positive? Or do you think it's, it, it, it's a, as Annie has said, we're just catching up with real life? I think there are a number of ways in which these guidelines are a step forward. And one of the ways perhaps is in, in terms of some of the, the language and that does reflect, I think, the fact that these guidelines were developed in consultation with parents and parent groups and they're designed for decisions that are to be made and have to be made in combination with parents. Um, so I think there's a, a step forward in terms of language, but Annie's probably right that there's still a way to go in understanding the parental perspective and reflecting that in the, the way that we as professionals write about these decisions and about risk and about disability. I think the, the major step forward in my mind in these guidelines is the emphasis on individualizing decision-making. The, the great... Uh, challenge of previous guidelines in the UK but also overseas is that they have in their focus on gestational age they've suggested that the same outcome might be appropriate for two infants with very different prognosis. We all know that two 24-week infants or two 23-week infants can be radically different for example because one of them's had steroids the other is uh, well-grown uh, or, or is very growth restricted, hasn't had steroids. Um, uh, so th there's a whole range of different factors. And, and one of the key elements of these guidelines was to say, how can we 
put together all of the information um, that's relevant for an individual uh, baby that's about to be born, that's relevant for an individual parents in order to provide a framework for that decision. Uh, that means that these guidelines are more complicated than previous ones. It's no longer the case that, uh, that neonatologists can uh, simply look up the mother's due date and say, uh, well, this is a baby's gestation, therefore this management is appropriate or not appropriate. There has to be a much more uh, complicated and sophisticated assessment of the risk in an individual circumstance and then a discussion with the parents. But that, I think, is a step forward. Absolutely. Um, Helen, would it be fair to say that in terms of data, we talk about data and evidence, and obviously these are, are, are as evidence-based as they can be. Um, are we still catching up with data collection on, I'm thinking about the very small micro preemies, as Annie would say, um, at 22 and 23 weeks, there there can be a lot of information or a lot of data on survival and 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 outcome of those babies. So, I, I guess my question is, there's a little bit of what these framework offers that is still uh, unknown and still requires to be collected. Would that be a fair comment? Um, well, I think it is important that we have good data. I think we are steadily making steps towards better collection. The Embrace data collection in the UK. It considers the outcomes for all pregnancies from 22 weeks of gestation. But I think the other point that we have to make here is when we interpret, when we look at data, we have to be very clear what our denominator is. And that's why we have chosen to cite outcomes based on uh, infants who were offered active care at birth. So if um, it's perhaps very obvious, but if you do not offer a baby at, say, 22 or 23 weeks gestation active care at birth, then the survival is nil. So that's why we have um, based our data on babies who have received active care where these data are available. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a minefield and it's really important that people understand the data that they are looking at uh, so that the outcomes can be fairly and properly explained to parents. And I think I'd just like to pick up on another point about cooperation. So we've, we've had lots of discussion about working in conjunction with parents. The other people we have to work in conjunction with are our obstetric colleagues. Um, and that's another, I think, a real strength of this document is that it was written with input from the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists um, in the UK. So we have very good obstetric buy-in and very much the message is that when a decision is made, that decision has to be one that is followed through by both the obstetric and the neonatal team. So if it's decided that the right thing is to offer the baby survival-focused care, then obstetric interventions should be employed to ensure that this baby is delivered in the best possible condition. And for some babies, that will involve antenatal transfer. So yes, it is complex, um, and we hope it's going to facilitate management of course and of course by extension then babies who are at 22 weeks receiving antenatal steroids if that's what the risk-based decision is that could fairly be described as a pretty well evidence-free zone and um, there's just a little evidence that you probably do improve outcomes and um, for the smallest babies so we were recommending that noting that at the moment the Royal College recommend steroids from 23 weeks and or consideration of steroids from 23 weeks on but um, in the absence of any 
suggestion that it would be detrimental when birth is, uh, is, is likely, we would recommend that additive steroids are given. Annie, do you have a view on the risk-based aspect and certainly the multidisciplinary aspect of making these decisions um, in conjunction with obstetricians, neonatologists, and undoubtedly with parents? I think what Helen says is extremely important, um, that working together is essential. Um, the change in philosophy, too, is essential. And it's I don't know how to best do this in a practical sense, because even if you show uh, at a conference of obstetricians outcomes of extremely preterm infants, um, it seems there's a step of seeing to believe. If you just read the outcomes, I guess you can't believe it until your 22 weekers come back and thank you and bring you flowers and chocolate when they go to follow up. And they never go to the delivery room. And maybe there's investigations and research and QI developments there to actually have a scheduled visit <laughs> to the OB to even show that, you know, if you have a hearing aid, um, you're happy. Um, but we also participate in this pessimism um, in our guidelines. So we really have to exert some caution of First of all, doing these guidelines, why are they necessary? So if you look at the ILCOR statement, um, they wonder if 0.1 or 1% um, is the right line to draw for futility. Um, should we really not resuscitate if we have 1% survival? And if you look at the American Trauma Association, there's only three criteria. There's decapitation, there's rigor mortis, and decomposition. These are the three criteria not to resuscitate. And here we are with our 30 to 50%. Um, and we really have to look at, um, we are very unique in trying to decide this and putting it on paper um, in medicine. And we're also unique that we are the people who have the best follow-up data. So we can actually um, investigate what we're doing. So there, there's no other place I can find in medicine where a risk of blindness, not just blindness, a risk of blindness, deafness, um, is judged as unacceptably severe impairment. Um, and it's not found as a justifiable reason to recommend comfort care. In fact, physicians who follow kids who have Down syndrome with an IQ below 60 do not recommend comfort care if they need to be intubated for pneumonia. Um, so perhaps also our, our pessimism in what we judge unacceptable or severe or profound um, taints our obstetrics colleagues because they don't see these kids. We don't really see them unless we do follow up or they come back, but they, they see them even less. So putting a face on outcomes and stories on outcomes, perhaps it's where the patient important outcomes and, and parents and other strategies will help. And certainly when you put it in stark contrast with the view of the, the trauma physicians, it's quite a difference in, in approach. Um, and just moving on to um, the delivery room, and, and you mentioned ILCOR, Annie, um, there's a, a separate editorial, I suppose, it's described as a viewpoint in this month's sections of the journal, uh, specifically focused on chest compressions and epinephrine in delivery room. Uh, Dominic, you're the lead author on that paper, so I'll, I'll come to you. Why is that important? Why is it important to labor that point in particular of all the aspects of the guideline? Why is it necessary to, to bring that out as a viewpoint? 
there are two parts of this guideline that I think are potentially controversial for some, uh, though not all, uh, of our neonatal colleagues. One of them is the contemplation that neonatologists might be actively managing babies before 23 weeks of gestation. That was indeed the, the thing that generated headlines in, in the newspapers. Um, uh, and in a sense, we've talked around some of the elements uh, and the justification for that already. But the other element that caused a lot of both confusion and anxiety uh, and some resistance among some of our colleagues was something that we didn't put in the guidelines, was something that we took out, which was a, a recommendation in the previous framework that extremely premature babies prior to 26 weeks gestation should not have chest compressions on the basis that there was no evidence uh, of benefit and an, and an inference that this was potentially harmful. Um, and because this was such a common question, and we felt it was important to justify why we had changed the, the framework in this way, uh, we wrote a separate, a, a number of us who were involved in the working group wrote a separate editorial explaining exactly what it was that we were recommending and why. So in the framework, we explicitly said that the issue of the providing chest compressions uh, for, for extremely preterm infants was of uncertain benefit, but we took the opposite approach from the previous guideline in that we said, in the absence of guidelines, we can't make a, a, a clear recommendation, and that in the absent other evidence, it would be appropriate to take the same general approach that we take to resuscitation of more mature infants, so to, to follow standard resuscitation guidelines. And in the editorial, we go through some of the ethical concerns about uh, providing uh, chest compressions and adrenaline to, to these uh, very smallest of infants. And, and the particular concerns are that, uh, that perhaps these interventions might do more harm than good. So it might, uh, might not merely be ineffective, but would potentially result in infants, for example, developing severe intraventricular hemorrhage. Uh, and we summarized some of the available epidemiological evidence, um, which shows that clearly those infants who have chest compressions do worse than those infants who don't have chest compressions. Um, but this is not a randomized sample. Um, those infants who have chest compressions are born in much worse condition. It's not surprising that they have worse outcome, higher mortality and higher rates of severe disability. Uh, indeed, the same is true of term newborn infants who need chest compressions, and we wouldn't uh, recommend against chest compressions in term infants on that basis. Secondly, if you look at those infants who've had chest compressions, including the most premature infants in cohorts largely from overseas, um, it's clear that the majority of those infants actually survive, uh, and the rates of severe disability, although higher, are not so high. Uh, that it would be futile to provide that treatment. Uh, and in the, in the editorial, we make the comment that as with the other elements of decision-making for these smallest of babies, it's important uh, to place it in the context of the individual baby and the wishes of the parents. Uh, so we're not recommending that clinicians embark on 
prolonged chest compressions and adrenaline. For example, a baby born at 22, uh, 23 weeks. Uh, but th there's a nuanced conversation with parents about their wishes and priorities. And that might mean for some babies less than 26 weeks uh, that it would be appropriate to provide those levels of intervention. Okay. Helen, just to try and round things off a little bit, this is obviously a, a national framework for practice. Um, how, how do people go about implementing this in their localities? Obviously, the nature of perinatal care in the UK um, differs from region to region. How, how do people go about implementing this framework? First of all, it seems like a good idea that they should implement it, so that's probably a given, but how do people go about that? Do you have any advice for them or, or any resources that you can point them to? Um, or having been through this process already, uh, what uh, pitfalls and, and, and problems might people run into? Well, I think most of it is down to education and discussion. Um, shortly before lockdown, I was very privileged to be at two or three fantastic network meetings where people have managed to pull together the obstetric teams and the neonatal teams and to have good discussion and education around the framework. I think the main thing that emerged, I think, is that people are a bit scared about embarking on active care for 22 and 23 week babies. It's not quite what they've been used to, but when presented with the evidence and actually presented with the fact that lots of people are already resuscitating babies at 23 and even 22 weeks gestation um, and what the aim of the framework to do is to ensure that we are providing equitable care across the country and um, that is the care that parents want for their children and care that is designed to uh, affect the best outcomes for babies when it's decided that active care is appropriate. I think we've got fantastic buy-in and um, that we are now realising challenges. I know that in some areas there's a little bit of a flurry of antenatal transfers at kind of 22 weeks and one day. Um, and in an anecdotal series, the outcomes haven't been particularly good. But then that's only measuring the outcome in terms of whether the baby survived or not. So I think, as Annie alludes to, we need to, as we assess this framework, we have to be going to parents at the right time and and asking if the care they got was good. Was it better to be actively managed or survival focused managed and moved to a tertiary care and given hope, even if that hope didn't turn out uh, perhaps as they had hoped. Um, so we need, we need education, we need buy-in, um, and we need to be listening to people and, and talking through concerns and, and what's gone well and what hasn't gone well in various uh, networks. Okay, well, wonderful. Um, so, Annie, Dominic, have you any last comments or any takeaway messages or thoughtful pearls about um, implementation and how these guidelines might affect care in the future? If we look at the UK, they have uh, improved their outcomes with every study. So we all hope everywhere to, to have an Epicure study, a third one. I know it's going to be a lot of work. <laughs> uh, absolutely. Uh, and Dominic? I have a slightly pessimistic note to end with, perhaps, uh, so I'll, I'll try and follow it with something more optimistic, um, which is that I think this guideline opens up 
to active management of some extremely premature infants where previously that would not have been thought to be an option. But it's worth highlighting that these extremely preterm infants with active management have still have a very high chance of dying. And indeed, for those units around the UK who follow the BAPM guidance and say, okay, well, now we're going to start to potentially actively manage some babies before the 23 weeks and zero days, it's highly likely that most of those babies who they start managing will sadly die. Um, but that's not uh, a failure of those guidelines. That's what is expected when you actively manage babies at that gestation. But some of them will survive, and our own experience locally um, has been, as international experience points to, that when you uh, start to open your mind to treating babies um, uh, beyond the point that you thought was possible, uh, you are sometimes surprised that there are babies who you didn't think would survive who are able to, and that, that it'll be those positive experiences that will uh, make this worthwhile um, to work together with families to try to uh, do what is possible to support them and their, their children. Well, I think that's quite an optimistic note to, to end on. So I'd like to thank Helen McTeer, uh, Annie Janvier and Dominic Wilkinson for their um, very interesting and spirited discussion on the new BAPM guidelines. If I could ask you individually for your Twitter handles, I think at least two of you have Twitter handles so that if people wanted to communicate or, or interact with the guidelines, and I think if discussion is the way that these are embedded into our neonatal culture, then I think discussion on all available forums is very important. Helen, I believe you have a, a Twitter handle? I do, yes. It's at hmcteer. Fantastic. Um, Annie, do you have a Twitter handle or a, or a means to communicate with you? Maybe I should get one eventually. I've, I have a Facebook and um, email, but no Twitter account. And Dominic? And neonatal ethics, all one word. Okay. Well, thank you all uh, very much. Uh, and of course, if listening to this podcast, if people do want to interact, you have our contributors uh, twitter handles i also believe that there are email addresses on the editorials certainly on dominic's and on, on annie's editorial um and also uh, on, on helen's email uh, as well and i would encourage a uh, fruitful discussion um, in order to look at how we can embed these quite hopeful uh, and progressive guidelines into practice so um thank you all for listening and i look forward to the conversation thank you john